Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We continue our walk through Revelation with a series entitled The Unveiling. Today we get to the church at Sardis, and I'm calling it the Comfortable Church. Before we read, before we get our text in front of us and hear God's message, just a couple of thoughts. My desire as your pastor when I stand in this pulpit is not to add to or take away from God's Word because the living Word of God is living and powerful, and all we've got to do is kind of turn it loose. If we turn it loose, it'll apply where it needs to be applied, and it'll cut hearts where it needs to. To cut hearts, it will draw where it needs to draw. I want you to remember, as we are working our way through this revelation, is that this is a word to us about yesterday, Today and forever. And here's what I will say to you, is that God's plan for the church is to be a redemptive church, to be a church that is on mission and on and ministry, reaching and touching people. Now, we find ourselves the fifth of seven churches, and thus far we have seen all the things that he's talked to these churches about that they needed to change correct. And he only does this like you do your children, wanting them to get on the right path. And that is the very nature of God's word. So let's stand together and read today the church at Sardis. If you're able, stand to honor the reading of God's word. This is a short passage today. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, To the angel, that is to the pastor, the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, now let me pause because I'm not really going to address this in the message. There are not seven individual Holy Spirits. The number seven in the, uh, in the book of the Revelation means completeness, means fullness. Additionally, you can find seven characteristics if you go and study the Old Testament, which is another message for another time. And the seven stars mean he has every pastor, every messenger, every man that he's anointed to lead, has them in his hand. He says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the one who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars says, here's the message, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. But if you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea of what I, at what hour I will come against you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never erase his name from the book of life. But will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says the churches. Heavenly Father, it's my prayer today <clears throat> that as we peer into your word, that you will allow your word to peer into us. I pray that this, even this day, 
with so many people out of town, even this day could be a watershed moment in the lives of every person in this room. That it can be that kind of a moment for this church. Lord, help us hear what you want to say, not just to the church at Sardis, but to church in Hueytown. In your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Over my lifetime, I've read this passage of Scripture many, many, many times. As a pastor, I've preached it a number of times. And when I read about the church at Sardis, there are a lot of terms that I can use. Up till now, we've been using the term B. Grant reminded me that Adrian Rogers said if it wasn't alliterated, it didn't have the Holy Spirit in it. And we've been using the term B. If you, if you remember, we, we talked about the backslidden church. We talked about the beat-up church. We talked about the bargaining church. And today, although I can find the word busy to describe Sardis, I can find the word contented to describe Sardis, cozy, I can find the word dead, because Jesus called them dead, dying, disintegrating. I can find all those words, but I've used this before, others used it, and I believe as we look at this church, we'll find them just to be a comfortable church. A church where they think everything is okay, everything is right. But listen, folks, whatever term you use to describe this church, please listen, it is a sad state of affairs. You see, in Matthew 16, Jesus outlined what he wanted for his church to be. He said, he said, upon a rock, like a faith, like you just expressed, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Now think about how he termed that. That meant that his church was going to be on the offensive against the defensive gates of hell and that his church was called to literally charge the gates of hell, rescuing people who have been lost in sin. He says, not only is my church the one that's supposed to be attacking the gates of hell, my churches are going to have the keys to the kingdom. And whatever they bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth is going to be loose in heaven. This is the church that I am leaving you with. This is the one I've come to start. This is the one that I'm going to die for, and this is the one I'm coming back for one day. His church is to be unstoppable. So, it serves us well when we read a word from Jesus himself that declares a church dead. If we're going to consider the church of Sardis, let's consider the city and the church. The city of Sardis and the church of Sardis, just for a moment. The city of Sardis was like most cities in America today. Most of the people are wealthy. Most of the people are quote, successful. They have very few things that they do without. You know, folks, think about it. How, how silly are we today? We can't wait for Christmas or our birthday so we can get a present. And most of us, when we want something, we go buy it today. We don't know what it is to really want. That's the way it was in Sardis. They had everything they wanted. In fact, Sardis, in Sardis, like America today, there was almost an arrogance among the people. 
They were so self-assured and self-confident that it, that it bordered on cockiness. Militarily, economically, culturally, they were really, they had really arrived. Now that's the city. And guess what? That culture had now invaded the church and impacted the church. Folks, is that not what's happening today in our land? That the culture is impacting the church and instead of the church impacting the culture? Inside the church at Sardis, it gave all the trappings that everything was okay. They had the best programs. They had the most money, the most resources. They probably had the best leader, the best pastor, the best staff. They had the best ministries. They were clicking in all cylinders. And here's a warning. Anytime a church gets really satisfied with where they are, you know, why do we want to change anything? Why do we want to reach anybody? Because I like our church just like it is. Anytime God's people gets comfortable, it's dangerous. It is at that time that Satan will stick up his ugly head. It is at that time that Satan will lead us astray. It is at that time that the church will get comfortable. And when they get comfortable, they'll get listless and they'll get contented and they'll get complacent and they'll get apathetic. You see, folks, God has called us to be a part of the redemption process. I got to thinking about this week. What does it mean to be a part of the redemption process? I've never watched this show. I've only seen it advertised. But there's a show on one of the cable channels entitled Intervention. You know what it's about? Intervention, where family members are intervening in addictive personalities. It could be drugs, it could be other things, but they are intervening to try to straighten them out. Do you realize that's where we are today? The life of a church should be about intervention. There are people who are on that wide, wide road to hell, and we're supposed to intervene. In fact, when there's a narrow road and there's a wide road, the picture in the, in the Greek pictures a wide road headed toward destruction and a narrow road inside the wide road going, going against the grain. That is where we are. And anytime we get, anytime we get satisfied, anytime we get comfortable, then we get complacent and we kind of lull off to sleep and Satan comes in. I was thinking about it this week and you remember the old Rocky movies. I think it was Rocky 3 where Apollo Creed said to Rocky Balboa, if you hadn't seen the movie, Apollo Creed was the retired, washed-up boxer. Rocky Balboa was in his prime. And Apollo said to him, said, don't lose the eye of the tiger, which means don't lose your focus. I'm here to ask you today, have you lost your focus? Has this church lost her focus? That's what happened at Sardis. So let's consider Sardis today. Let's take a look at Sardis Flip it on your bulletin. You can, you can follow along. Take notes. Let us begin with God's indictment. With God's indictment. Now, you know what an indictment is. It's an accusation. And it's accusation of a false. It's an accusation of a defense or a crime. And unlike us, who wants to water it down and make up the rules as we go, God doesn't do that. He lays it out. So he begins talking to this church who thought one thing, but the truth was something else. He begins, first of all, by addressing the confusion. The confusion 
in the church. Confusion's a, a dangerous thing. When you get confused, you can get hurt. When you get confused in the middle of a battle, you can really get hurt. And if you get confused about whether you're in a battle or not, Teddy, you can really get hurt. In fact, you read about friendly fire on the battlefield, and you'll find that when soldiers have been wounded, there's been confusion, and they shot the wrong person. You see, there is a great deal of confusion in the church today. There was here. They thought they had a reputation. They just knew that they were clicking. But Jesus said something else was going on. They were confused. May I suggest to you, may I submit to you, we're confused in the church today. It's not limited to Hueytown, but Hueytown's not excluded. Now let me just jump on us just a second. We want to build a church, so we say. But do we want to build a church for our grandparents or do we want to build a church for our grandchildren? Whichever one we want to build for is what we will give our lives to. Do we sense, have we, are we confused that we think we're in this battle of, of wills and people? Or are we really in a battle for people's souls? When we go up against the gates of hell, the gates of hell contain the souls of people that God has put in our charge. The church at Sardis was confused about a number of issues and things. They were confused about their guidelines, their goals, their God. Their guidelines had become what they wanted it to be as opposed to the Word of God. How sad is it when a church runs on to, on this premise? Well, I think... Well, I think, and you know what will happen when you, go, when you run a, when a church begins to function on a what I think mentality? This is what will happen. Well, I know what the Bible says, but what I think is, hello, has anybody besides me, does that disturb anybody besides me? The church at Sardis, the church at Sardis was a church that had a reputation of doing all kind of good things good. They thought they had it together. And literally, and literally, they were confused about their guidelines. They were confused about their goals. Obviously, they wanted to have that good reputation. They wanted people to see them as a busy church. They wanted people to see them and, and lift them up. And their God had become, their God had simply become to have a good reputation. Interestingly, they think they're doing pretty good. In their opinion, in the opinion of their culture, they were the church and were doing good. But Jesus had another opinion. We can think we're doing good, but what is Jesus' opinion? Now, generally opinions are like thumbs. Everybody's got one. But may I just offer this to you? Jesus is the one who came for the church, birthed the church, died for the church, and is one day coming back from the church. He calls the church his bride, and I'm going to just suggest this to you, that he's tired of people messing with his bride. You see, Jesus is the one who charts the course. Jesus is the one who sets the standard. Jesus is the one who puts leadership in place. Jesus is our goal. Jesus is our God. Jesus gives our guidelines. And I will say this to us. There might be a great deal of confusion 
about who's in charge. Whose opinion matters? Probably got some baseball fans in here. You remember the name Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth held a home run record for a lot of years. What people don't know is Babe Ruth also struck out a lot. Story is told in one ball game that he was standing there and he was left-handed. And behind the plate was an umpire named Babe Pinella. Strike one, strike two, strike three. Pinella called him out on strikes. Ruth turned to the umpire and tried to give kind of a populist um, argument like we give all the time. And he said, Pinella, you goofball. 40,000 people in these stands know that was a ball. And Pinella looked back at him. He said, yeah, that may be right, but there's only one opinion that counts. That's mine. Do you know what? The world can think you're the best in the world. The culture can pat us on the back, but there's really only one opinion that counts. That's his opinion. The confusion. And you know what the confusion is over? It is over the charges that Jesus levels to the church. Number two, the charges that Jesus has against the church. Now, he says, you think you're alive. You believe your own press. And you can believe it as long as you want. But listen, in my eyes, Jesus said, in my eyes, you are dead wrong. In fact, you're not just dead wrong. You're dead. Now, is there anybody in this room besides me who find those words to be a little stinging? Think about that member. Think about that chairman of deacons. Think about that Sunday school teacher. Think about the one who is, who is an elder in that church. And Jesus himself comes and says, you're dead. I want you to think about something. We call Jesus the great physician, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just have the ability to heal. He has the ability to diagnose. And I want you to think about what he did. He walked to this church at Sardis. And he listened for the sounds of breathing. And he heard none. He put his finger to a vital vein. In that church. And he felt nothing. He took his spiritual stethoscope. And stuck it to the heart of this church. And heard nothing. And he declared them dead. Spiritually dead. Oh listen. How could that be? They're so busy. They're doing everything right. How can they be dead? I mean they had the reputation of being alive. People knew that they were alive. We may not like to hear this. Large attendance doesn't necessarily mean life. A large bank account doesn't necessarily mean life. Great music doesn't necessarily mean spiritual life. Great preaching doesn't necessarily mean spiritual life. Having great women ministry, children's ministry, student ministry, all of that does not mean life. You can have those things and be spiritually dead. I mean, we know how to put on a good show for a community. I shared this with a student team in our last meeting. We can't 
out activity the world. Let me say that again. We cannot out activity the world. But let me give you the good news. God didn't call us to out activity anybody. He called us to change lives, to bring light to a dark world, to bring salvation to a needy world. As good as activities are, as good as ministries are, here's the truth. If they don't change lives, what's the use? Have you ever wondered why the church at Sardis died? Have you ever wondered what it was that that caused them to die? Please listen. If you've not listened to anything else, please listen. This is a story I read and just kind of jumped out at me. Clovis Chapel tells this story. He tells of a young, eccentric preacher who went to a new church, was there several years and just kept running to one frustration after another, one fight after another, one feud after another, one conflict after another. And finally, in frustration, he stood in the pulpit and he pronounced, This church is dead! And said, I'm going to preach its funeral next Sunday morning. If you want to come to the funeral of this church, you be here. Next Sunday, as everybody entered the worship center, he had a closed casket over here. When the music was over, Grant, he walked by and he raised the lid on the casket. And he said something like this. He went back to the pulpit and he said something like this. He said, now some of you, you don't agree with me that our church is dead. In order to convince you that our church is spiritually dead, I want you to come by and see the remains. And one by one, they passed by. And the young preacher had placed in the bottom of the casket a mirror. You know how the church died? You know how church dies spiritually? When our people die spiritually. They become so comfortable with the status quo. They become so comfortable with how they are. That all of a sudden, our Lord takes second or third place that lost people are not even on the map anymore. In fact, this week, I decided, I want to know, I want to know some characteristics of a spiritually dead church. So, where do I go, Miss iPod 2 down there? I go to the internet. I've got a list, I've found several lists, but one I just want to share with you, just for your thought. Clues. For the dead church. Now I'm only going to put one of them up at a time. But I want us to let, let's think about this a second. Clues for a dead church. They've lost their sense of mission to those who have not heard about Jesus Christ. Did you realize we have that mission in this town? Our mission is not to have the best music. Our mission is not to have the best preaching. Our mission is not to keep the preacher under control or have the most finances. Our mission is to share Jesus Christ with this community. Have lost their... Go ahead, Brandon. They exist primarily to provide fellowship for the members of the club. All I did was copy and paste these. I didn't reword them. Number three, they expect their pastors to focus primarily on ministering to the members' personal spiritual needs. Let me pause there just a second. Brother Terry... I will apologize to you publicly if, uh, if you didn't want me to tell this like this, but I didn't ask your permission. One of the men 
that has the greatest gift of pastoral ministry that I have ever met sits right there. He does. And yet, in private conversations, when God called him to preach, that's not what he called him to do. He called him to preach. You see, the truth is, is that we all should have spiritual needs. That's what Ephesians 4 is all about. He gave pastors and preachers and all those gifted people to teach people how to do the work of the ministry. That's why I'm so proud of our ministry teams that we have here. We have, we have at least six men, maybe as many as eight, that go regularly to visit. We have at least two women, maybe many more that I don't know about, but I can identify, I know too, that does ministry. That is what God has called us to do. Four. Design ministries, the dead church designs ministries to meet the needs of their members. Number five, they have no idea about the needs of the strangers outside the gates. Do you know what the need is of your neighbor? Do you know what the need is of the person who sits in the desk next to you, the one you play golf with? Six, they're more focused on the past than the future. We're back to, are we we really... Does our day-to-day activities lead us to have a church for our grandparents, our grandchildren? A couple of weeks, at least three men and I, maybe more, are going down to Sherwood Church in Albany, Georgia. That's the movie-making church. Because they have a spiritual emphasis on revival. The saying in their, in their community, in their church, is this. The one who wants the next generation the most will get it. And I'm afraid right now the world's winning. The dead church doesn't really care about the future. Number seven, they often experience major forms of conflict. Number eight, They watch the bottom line of the financial statement more than the number of confessions of faith. There they all are. As I read those, they stung a little bit if you want to know the truth. And now I think about the church at Sardis. The one that was declared dead by the Son of God. You know how come Jesus can declare something dead? You know how come Jesus declares something dead? Because Jesus has been dead. And he came back to life. He knows what it is to be dead and then to come back to life. If he sees spiritual death in us, he calls it, he calls it like he sees it. In this place, he said, uh, <clears throat> you're dead and something's about to happen. And that brings us to the consequences the consequences for the church. In verse number three, he gives them fair warning. He says, if you don't change your ways, and I believe it's us too, if you don't change your ways, I will come like a thief. You go back to Ephesus He says, if you don't get right, I'll remove your lampstand. To Pergamum, he says, I'll make war against you. 
To hear, he says, I'm going to come like a thief. Now, what are you talk- what's he talking about? Well, Dr. Robert Cage gives us some clues. He says it could be one of two things. He says, first of all, for the dead, dying church, he says, I'll remove that star. I'll remove that messenger. I'll remove that pastor. He said the second option is worse than that. Perhaps he's saying, I will remove you as a church. You see, it's my belief today when I read this text that in the United States of America that many churches are existing under the hand of God. Under the judgment of God. I believe that's why today we have churches closing at two a month across America. A dead church, a corpse, lifeless. It seems to me that God has no option but to bury her. It's what you do with a corpse. And yet this scripture is here warning the churches of today, warning this church, warning other churches. But how do we pay, do we pay attention to warnings at all? I'll take you back to 1993, February 1993. Places, New York City, the Twin Towers. We don't remember this anymore. February 26, 1993, Twin Towers basement, powerful bomb went off. You remember that? Oh, they launched an investigation, arrests were made. But few law enforcement recognized that this was the beginning. And in fact, when the Twin Towers fell, some eight years later, Raymond Kelly, the police commissioner in New York, said this. He said, that should have been a wake-up call for America, and we ignored it. May I say to us that it seems to me that the church of Sardis should be a wake-up call for every church in America. And the consequences, and the consequences are huge. You see, God has no desire to bury a church. He wants to bless a church. He has no desire to reject a church. He wants to revive and restore a church. And so let's move from God's indictment to God's invitation. Jesus said many times, come to me. He said, return. And it's all centered around this word, repent. And yet when we see him saying in verse 3, repent, we also can go back to last week's and get a little clue about what's going on in America today. What's going on in the church today? He's given us time to repent, and we don't want to repent. He gave Jezebel time, and she didn't want to repent. She wanted to keep doing things like they had been done. You see, our Lord, our Lord gives us an invitation. What will we do with his invitation? He's giving you a, really an RSVP invitation. And he does it in three ways. First of all, the call. The call to God's people. 
I'm just going to depart from the message just for a second to say this. The call to God's people. So many of us want the preacher to get up and rant and rave about the sin in this world, about how, how dark this world is and how perverse this world is and how wrong it is. All those things are right and true. But listen, until judgment begins at the house of God, there will be no light in our culture. Until there is repentance among God's people, don't expect people out there to repent. Until the people of God begin living like the people of God, there's going to be no reason for anyone to change. The call is, in verse 2 and 3, two times he says, guys, be alert. Be watchful. Pay attention. Look up. You see, the constant attitude of the believer is has to be repentance. I was reading about... Um, um, had um, uh, Charles Spurgeon last night. He stayed in a constant attitude of spiritual repentance and spiritual revival. We need to pay attention. We need to pay up. We need to watch out because of the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. He is trying to catch us being complacent, being comfortable, and he wants us. He wants us to follow his way. You think about Sardis, this great city where everybody was so arrogant. Militarily, they set up on a high plateau, and you just was impregnable if they had offered any kind of defense. But two times the city of Sardis was taken down because they got so apathetic and complacent. You see, we need to pay attention to the Satan. We need to, we need to pay attention. We need to wake up and pay attention of how Satan is going to tempt us, how he's going to work on us. He knows how to blow out our, the flame of our heart. We must pay attention to the false teachers, the false members. Jude talks about how in the last days men creep in and they teach false doctrines. We need to be, let me just say this to you on a positive note, we need to be looking forward to the second coming. I believe if we would look forward to Jesus' return, it would change our everyday life. That's the call to God's people. We're not even talking about lost people. We're talking about God's people. Now, I have said this is a comfortable church. There is nowhere in Scripture that God promises His people to be comfortable. But He does promise that He will give His people comfort. Comfort. For God's spiritual-filled people, he says in verse 4, he says, you have a few people. Did you hear that? You have a few people, and they've not defiled their clothes. And they'll walk with me in white. You see, folks, there's still a remnant. There's still a remnant of God's people who want to see God do something special, who want to see, who want to see God do something wonderful. When I see about this comfort and I, I think about Jesus standing up for this remnant, I'm reminded of Abraham in the shadow of the destruction of Sodom. And he went before God. He said, God, if I can find 50 people, will you not destroy the city? 40, 30, 20? He said, if I can find 10. You know why Sodom and Gomorrah? was destroyed, it was not because of the wickedness in the city, it was because of the lack of faithful men in the city. He says, you wear white garment if you're part of the remnant. This is your comfort. 
What does white mean? Well, it certainly means purity. It also means festivity. You can go back and read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the festive nature you wore, um, you wore white. It also, it also meant um, uh, victory from a Roman standpoint. And one day it's going to mean immortality as we put on white and walk the streets of gold with him. God gives comfort. His invitation is to come to me, repent. And yet he still faces this dead church. So his last part of his invitation is the cure. It's the cure. When I read verse 3, I see an invitation that is repeated time and again. Time and again in God's word. Remember, repent, and return. The three R's. Let's just end this message and let's get off the church for a second. Christ's invitation to you. To you. To you. Can you remember? Can you remember when you invited Jesus into your life? Can you remember what it was like to have a hot heart for Jesus? Can you remember what it was like when Jesus consumed your day? What it was like when Jesus was the reason for your living. You put your life, you you planned your life around what Jesus wanted you to do instead of trying to fit Jesus into your life. Brother Jerry, I don't think I ever had time like that well brother and sister if that's you why not come today and invite Jesus into your life because that's the only way I know that he comes into a life if you've never invited him into your life you've never repented of your sin you never confessed him as Lord why not begin right there today do we have folks in our fellowship do we have folks in this room that need to be saved for God to get loose in this fellowship If you do remember that time you met Jesus, how's your heart today? How's your passion? Do you still know the joy of of what Jesus gave you when he saved you from hell and put you on the road to heaven? Let's take it out of your purview then. In the same way that Jesus looks at every one of these churches... If Jesus looked into your heart today, would he say, you think you're alive? And I know that you're alive. Or would he say, you think you're alive, but spiritually, you're dead. Dead. Alive. What are you today? The old West, they used to put up wanted posters, wanted dead or alive. I really do believe this. I believe our Lord Jesus wants you and me dead to life. Would you be honest with him?
today. Let's pray.